1: Welcome once again to the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby and Professor Steve Keen is with me as well. We've talked a lot about the importance of energy to the economy. In fact, is it so important that those with energy resources will always be the winning economy with a positive trade balance? Is energy efficiency a race to the top? In other words, that's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, we have talked about energy as being the real driver of an economy. And Steve, you reckon the formula for production is wrong. It's not a function of capital and labour, you have to include energy in there. And uh, I guess the question is, where does it go in? Because, I mean, capital and labour, they're, all, all, well, they're almost interchangeable, aren't they, really? Because if you've got uh, lots of people, they're just bad consumers of energy because they're not as efficient as machines. Whereas if you invest in capital, then you can automate stuff, and so you you, you get a better return. So capital and labour are one thing. The other input certainly is energy. Well, isn't it's, it?
0: it's it, the moment is the machines are what determine your capacity to turn energy into useful work or into use, use products, which which embody useful work. Uh, so the machines are doing. You know, this is so different to say 250 years ago when so much of the work was done by manual labour directly. Uh, the manual labour these days is really there to control the machines, uh, sometimes to repair the machines. I think I posted a photograph on Twitter, people may have seen, of watching two engineers working on the nose wheel of my plane that I was flying back from Amsterdam to London in last week. But soon um, Machines said, are going to be fixing machines soon, though, aren't they? Machines will be fixing machines at some stage, and that, that is certainly the direction we're heading in. Um, so you, you, your labor input is now rated to, to control the machines, to do what's necessary to make the machines function, and that labor is going to continue declining over time. Yeah. And, and what you see in terms of countries which have had enormous growth is they've used those machines to harness more energy and harness it more effectively. It isn't necessarily more efficient about how that's done because we often have ended up using, uh, when we make something more efficient, we end up using more energy with it rather than less. Yeah. Uh, It's really been an increasing amount of energy throughput.
1: But yes, it's the amount of energy you've got. So uh, the you know the amount of output that you can produce as a country or as a as a company is dependent on the amount of energy you've got access to, or
0: the amount of it or, or the cost of that energy, and how efficiently you're using it is obviously. And, and, that, and, and how you transform it. So of course, Japan's got almost no domestic energy sources, but clearly has been an extremely successful country in transforming the energy that it imports into into useful products. Yeah. So that's the um, that's that's the bottom line but success. Uh, right okay but they
1: i mean and it's you know good on them for doing that if saudi arabia had done the same then they'd be doing really well wouldn't they because they've got uh access to you know for a long time have had access to relatively cheap energy uh they just haven't used it to produce other stuff if they had used that energy to manufacture uh and other energy rich countries did the same then non-energy producers
0: i mean they'd be basically stuffed wouldn't they well, this is, the, this is where actually Norway's is a good comparison because Norway is another oil rich country compared to Saudi Arabia. And what Norway did with its, uh, I'm not going to say it's a perfect country by any stretch of imagination, but what they did was say, we're going to get this enormous surplus out of North Sea oil. We're going to use that twofold. One, to build up a huge sovereign wealth fund, but also, secondly, to improve our infrastructure and our technology. Mm. And Norway was a very, very rural, um, very, you know, I went, I, I'm still sure going to use the word peasant. I better not use the word because I've got quite a few good Norwegian friends. G'day, Um But it was a very rural-oriented, low-tech society 40 or 50 years ago. And courtesy both of their own decisions to raise their technological level but also courtesy of using the oil money to do that, it's now one of the most successful industrial nations on the planet. Mm. So you can do it. Now, it's Saudi Arabia done. Uh, it's just enormous wealth. You know, we've seen the scale of the billionaires that have been created by the sheikhs at the top of the system. However, they have started to realize that they are going to run out of oil one day or not be able to sell oil at once at some stage. So I understand there's actually quite a large, uh, devotion of money, of money now to building solar technology in Saudi Arabia. And that, that may be their effective replacement for not, when that oil is no longer usable.
1: But what a surprise that they didn't, you know, that, that's happening. I mean, you know, it would come as a surprise to no one, but surely they would have thought decades ago, hang on a second, we've got all this energy, uh, this energy, you know, there's an opportunity for value add. We can use it as a, as an input to the manufacturing process. If we own that manufacturing process here, first of all, we don't have to ship the energy anywhere. Secondly, uh, we've got this relative advantage over those, you know, those other countries who have to, you know, if they haven't got any fuel, they're going to have to, get people to do all the work fueled by the vegetables they eat. You know, we can do stuff so much more efficiently than they can.
0: Why wouldn't they have done it decades ago? Partly because they're informed by economists. Economists tell them comparative advantage is what you should be doing. So you should specialise in Mm. energy and let other countries specialise in manufacturing. Total nonsense because what you should be doing is using whatever resources you have to invest and develop new technology and new manufacturing production capability over time which is what norway has done and also so where i'm now based has done do you know what the world's second largest exporter of food is uh which country which country on the planet number one is america what is number two country for exports of food uh i don't know uk probably exports quite a bit of uh, fruit and veg what, it's, it's a net egg importer i'd expect no is it it's mm. the netherlands where I am right now. All right, okay. It's the second world. Well, second, and the reason is because they've gone for a dramatic increase in the technology level of their, their farming, and they've actually cut out ninety re- percent reduction in water use and uh, almost eliminated pesticides by industrialising in, in terms of greenhouses and things like that, and 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 drip and drip irrigation rather than spray irrigation and so on. So, a country which has got incredibly high population density and very small amount of land is the world's second largest exporter of food. So, so thank, yeah, thank God, though,
1: economists have badly advised the nations of the world on this idea of comparative advantage, because otherwise the, uh, th- those people who were uh, rich in energy resources would be trying to uh, control the game.
0: Well, they do to a large degree anyway. But they'd be, yeah, but, I mean, they'd they'd be, but
1: further, they'd be able to say, well, not only are we going to charge you a fortune for our energy, we're now going to mm-hmm. charge you a fortune for all the goods that are produced using that energy.
0: Yeah, well, the energy is, if you've, got, if you've got the hand on the energy, then you have an enormous advantage of those who don't have it. Yeah. But, of course, what's actually happened, as we've seen in practice, is that countries that haven't had a domestic energy source have actually done better at saying if we're going to harness that capability to produce goods more effectively. So Japan is the outstanding example, of course. Yeah. But, again, we, we talked a bit in the last podcast, we talked a bit about, I mentioned Deming's name. Now, why did Japan adopt the ideas of Deming? It's because Deming, being American, Tried to persuade American manufacturers after the Second World War that they had to improve their manufacturing tech techniques and get to take this lean approach he was talking in favour of, rather than the the straight stock standard Fordist production line. Let's let's uh, develop a, ju- a just in time system, not so much on the um, on minimum of uh, warehousing and so on, but just as process which means you improve the production, continuous improvement process over time. America, having won the Second World War and being the biggest bully on the planet, well, we, don't, we don't need your advice, he was completely ignored and he got an invitation from MITI, Japanese Ministry of Industry and Technology and uh, and Trade and Industry. And he popped over to Japan and when he arrived there, he said, look, at the moment when you try to export products, again, you're going to be producing low-quality stuff. People will laugh at it and uh, say, what a joke you are, and they'll only buy it because it's cheap. In 20 years they'll be complaining about unfair competition from you. Mm. That's exactly what happened.
1: Yeah. Um, J- but Japan has only got into that stage of being very efficient because they had to. So, uh, so, yeah, so like saying Saudi, the, Arabia being Saudi Arabia, Arabia hasn't because they've been able to be, a
0: certain logic to it.
1: Yeah. Saudi Arabia has sort of like just been able to say, well, we don't need to. Therefore, we're sort of like uh, we haven't developed. Well, yeah, that
0: no, I was in Kuwait just recently. It, uh, I don't think I'd go to Saudi Arabia. Kuwait is actually rather more a progressive, progressive country overall. Mm. But what we quite I've arrived, uh, I think, very first thing in the morning. So it's still dark as i arrived but it wasn't dark because in the in the drive from the airport to the hotel i was staying at uh, i went past a field which would have been roughly speaking say t- say 20 hectares say 80 acres of land and it had lots and lots of lights and a nice neat rows. Mm. nothing else there just basically power being used yeah uh, Because they had the power uh, and and it's almost free. It's virtually free in those countries. So you, you, you don't, having it on abundance means you don't necessarily think we have to make use of this stuff until such time as the start to, to develop ourselves over time until you start to run out of it. That's what Saudi Arabia seems to be doing now. So if God had been slightly
1: more progressive and when he was designing uh, the world, he'd actually said, well, I'll tell you what, I can imagine how these countries are going to be divided up. I'm going to spread energy evenly amongst all of those so everybody gets access to the same amount. If he if he, if he thought that hard. He only had seven days, so I guess, you know, he didn't get to that yeah, a bit of A, rush, a bit, rush of, job, a bit yeah. of a rush job, wasn't it? I mean, as yeah. we've seen, I mean, there's lots of weaknesses which you could point to. But if he'd sort of just thought this through so everyone had the same amount of energy, then it really would be a case, wouldn't it, of the most efficient user of energy creates the largest output. So they make
0: all the, or the one that gets the most, it harnesses the most energy. Again, it isn't mm. so much efficiency. It's, it's, and this is one of the things which I'm, I'll be doing the stats on this actually next week with uh, Michael Kumoff and Tiago Domingo, uh, at the Bank of England, uh, to actually try to fit this information to, about GDP, the relationship between GDP and energy. And what you find is there's a very much straight line relationship between the amount of GDPs we measure it, which is, you know, a, a price deflated. some some of widgets which is how we measure it right now and energy use and the more energy the more widgets so it it, it hasn't been a case of uh, more efficiently using energy it's using more of the stuff over time yeah and if you just even just roughly speaking it's quite probable that the amount of energy per head that we uh, consume uh, has risen of the order of two percent two or three percent per annum which means doubling virtually every 20 years so over two you know, to the power of twelve over the uh, period of the Industrial Revolution, uh, but that—that that is one of the, the catches, which we've spoken about a couple of times. If you keep on doing that uh, in four, I think it's four hundred and fifty years, doing it on the planet without any regard to what the other consequences are, to get global warming. The waste heat from that will be enough to boil water across the entire planet. Yeah. So the, the approach we've been using, which is basically not more efficiently using energy, but using more energy, uh, that has a use-by date. And the use-by date was probably uh, 1990. Right. Right. Presumably it will plateau
1: though, isn't it? Because we, I mean, you, we, there's only so much energy we can use. At some point, first of all, we're using it more efficiently. And secondly, to, to produce the same output. And secondly, at some point, surely our, our, the, the level of output's going to level off. We aren't going to
0: keep on consuming at the same rate, are we? Well, um, there certainly has to be a plateau. One of my favourite blog posts is a blog post called, I think it's called Finite Physicist Meets Exponential Economist or vice versa, Mm. and uh, it's a physicist who sits down with the economist and reveals how little the economist knows about uh, the real world but points out that if we continue consuming so that we double um, um, per capita output every, uh, I think, 20, 25 years, then in 450 years, the surface temperature of the planet will be enough to boil water. In in 1,500 years, it's enough to have the same temperature of the sun. And if we keep on doing it at this rate, we'll be, I think, in 2,000 years, we'd be consuming the entire energy of the galaxy. Now, of course, we can't do that. So there is a limit. But I think what we've seen in terms of where really increased welfare has come from... On an individual basis, it's increased use of energy. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the unfair distribution of that increase in energy, which is a huge part of our conflicts today and will be even worse in the future. But, but fundamentally, right, that but it, rising rate of energy per head, We we, want, we, we, we you, you and I are probably consuming as much energy per head as Marie Antoinette. Yeah. Yeah, Probably
1: yeah, more. yeah. I uh, yeah, yeah. don't
0: look as good either,
1: but still. <laughs> I don't know. Well, she's decomposed quite badly. I, I think the is no, she She's finally caught
0: up with us, yeah. I was
1: going to say, it's going to be marginal at, at best. Yeah. Look, um, we are going to use energy more, other sources of energy. This this inequality which we've got, it's obviously largely driven by oil, but we've got other um, uh, alternatives like sun and wind, will they ever become as efficient as oil? I think they've got to. They've well, got- no,
0: this is the trouble. They can't they can't become as productive, efficient in the, the classic sense of efficiency, which was used by en- energy engineers, and that's what they call energy return on energy invested. Yeah. And this is the real catch we face because um, the amount of – to get energy out, you have to put energy in to some extent. So if you and I were, you know, 10,000 years ago we swinging from trees, to get that uh, piece of fruit, we'd have to have eaten a piece of fruit the day before. And that gave us the energy to grab that piece of fruit. So there's always an energy input to get energy output. Mm. And what you want is to have that being a, a very high ratio. So small amount of work, large amount of energy return. In the case of oil, it was the biggest we've ever experienced in our, in our species history, because in the very early days, the amount of energy you needed to put in to get, to get oil out uh was of the order of one to one hundred or one to three hundred, yeah, something in that it, range. So of the pressure one, just
1: shot it shot out of the ground. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so so and that's under pressure. If you put a hole and it hits an oil uh oil reservoir, it will come out of the ground. The hard stuff is stopping it. So that that is the um the reason the oil age in particular uh gave us a false Idea that we could keep on doing this indefinitely. Coal being far worse, of course, because coal is far more polluting than oil. Mm. And we have far more coal. We have, I think we have about at current usage rates, estimates are that the natural oil, the stuff we actually, you know, drill a hole to get rather than the shale or stuff that will run out in something of the order of less than a century. Whereas the coal at current usage rates would go for three centuries. Now, if we continue pumping the amount of of carbon that's in that coal, uh, the planet would have, you know, 2,000 parts per million coal, and it would be about as – the typical day in London would be a typical day on Venus right now, which you don't want to experience. So there are limits to how much we can consume of this stuff, but we have been consuming it as if we can keep on doing it indefinitely. And those the days that are numbered, and I said we have already gone past, I think, the peak point, we should have stopped doing what we're doing in terms of the exploiting that, coal, that carbon-based energy about uh, 20 or 30 years ago.
1: But if you're in a country, uh, say you're in North Korea, imagine you're Kim Jong-un just for for, for a moment and you don't have access to, I don't, I don't know what resources they do have in, in North Korea, but let's assume you don't have access to uh, to oil and you wanted to just build your own ecosystem. You wouldn't worry. You'd just sort of like say, well, oil doesn't exist. I'm going to have to use uh, inefficient energy sources like uh, like solar cells or uh, maybe hydroelectric schemes which i think are reasonably efficient uh, or i'm going to go nuclear which uh, is probably what he'd do seeming as he's uh, already got a penchant for that um then you would even if it cost you more to produce it um, you're not going to you, you you're still able to create more efficiency out of that And develop your own ecosystem where you are getting more out of the energy that's. Well, there's, there's real blame about that. The the, issue, the issue is international trade, isn't it? If you make anything, it's going to be so expensive comparatively because of the energy input. But if it's just for your own
0: closed ecosystem, you wouldn't have to worry about that. Well, the trouble is you have to be net productive. I mean, you can't have, you can't have to put in, you know, one kilowatt of energy to get 900 watts out. You've got to have a positive and there has to be a substantial positive before you can support anything other than a, a you know, a, a scraping existence. So the, the point of, of, uh, no return in effect of if you fall below this level, then you're going to go backwards is something of the order of an energy return, and energy invested of five. So in other words, you want to put no more than one kilowatt in to get five kilowatts back. Right. And. In the early days of the photovoltaic cells, when they would only convert, say, 10% of the electricity, 5% in some cases early on, of that electricity into energy, then the amount of work it took to build the photovoltaic cell in the first place uh, was so great that over the life of the photovoltaic cell, it would return less than the amount of energy needed to build it. So we are now at the stage that all sorts of calculations I've seen about this. We should actually do a more detailed show on this particular point, mate, because it's a very important one. Um, But the... We're now looking at energy return and invested calculations in about the 10 to 30 range for what we're getting out of uh, photovoltaic or we can get out of them and and wind. So they are now getting to the stage where they can support, if, if they were an only energy source, they could support a fairly sophisticated society with fairly well-off individuals in it. But the trouble is if we need to get there in a hurry, mm. we won't be able to because... Um, and it would still...
1: It's still going to be cheaper to import oil from uh, from the oil producing nations. We just yeah, sure. it's yeah,
0: it's, and that's the, the so long as the oil is still there. I mean, the oil the, of any of the resources which are going to run out of oil is the one which is most obvious because coal, as I said, there's. Three centuries worth of the stuff. Right. We're never going to run out of coal.
1: Now we've spoken. Uh, we've spoken many many times about how you know governments have got this ability to print money, so they can issue bonds. We could those bonds could be used to invest in uh, in infrastructure projects. It it makes perfect common sense, doesn't it? That those infrastructure projects are energy related because they are the key input to your. But again, uh, even though you can make system. the
0: money out of nothing, you've got to you've got to have an infrastructure project because you a net energy return. Yeah. And... And this has to be a substantial net energy return so you uh, have anything like a reasonable standard of living. Are we at that and stage, we are, though? At the stage, are we huh? close to that stage where that could be done? Like a,
1: like a country like the UK could say, yep, we are going to uh, uh, develop a, a, a vast uh, set of our own res- energy resources, and we're going to do it with, with, with public money. And we're going to, uh, even though it's going to be more expensive than oil, uh, we are going to cut back on our oil imports.
0: That is the sort of decision we're going to face, I think, in the next 10 to 20 years. But right. what would happen um, if, what would happen if you went down that road? Do you well, you- initially, initially, there'd be a substantial fall on the standard of living because mm. the amount of, it, you wouldn't be putting more people into producing energy because there's no point doing it. Uh, you need to, but what you'd have is there'd be less net output per individual because in, in, if you see production as fundamentally t- using energy to do useful work, uh, the amount of net useful work that could be done would fall dramatically. And therefore the standard of living would fall equally dramatically. So I think we do face that crunch at some point, but I've seen a lot of people and I'm no expert in this area, but I take advice of engineers that I'm in touch with and they tell me that we are going to be forced to go nuclear. Mm. Uh, because nuclear has got a very bad name courtesy of, you know, Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and Fukushima and, 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 and so on. But they said, uh, the engineers themselves continue saying to me, "Listen, we have, our technology is far safer than you realise. Uh, lots of advances have been made. The greenies, and they very very—they've got a, a positive negative towards cons- conservationists. They'll say the greenies have demonised uh, uh, the." Uh, radiation damage and danger etc etc of nuclear power but if you look at the exactly the same issues the danger and radiation and so on of coal uh, the amount of waste that's dumped into the atmosphere from coal mm. usage actually exceeds what comes out of nuclear plants for the same amount of energy it just happens so, it just
1: happens a bit it just happens a bit quicker and therefore it's and it's bit, also much it's more, more vocalized, you a bit can more, can more in a prominent spot. in the news that's right because yeah, uh, yeah yeah coal continues to destroy the environment isn't a front page news- newspaper headline is it yeah
0: uh, the the worst the <laughs> worst Pollution we're doing to the planet is not nuclear. Yeah. Uh, it's it's CO two. Yeah. And so at some point we confront that, and we've got to shift over. And the fastest way we can do it, in, in terms of high, really high energy return energy invested, is nuclear
1: right so we, and nuclear of course setting up nuclear plants is expensive a very high upfront cost and you need
0: highly educated people to do it, which is our point in the previous conversation right. but getting a good law degree doesn't tell you how to build a, uh, <laughs> a nuclear a, power
1: plant so so, so no. okay so a logical approach would be then to say we'll use some of this money that can be created by the government to invest in a, in, a, in a nuclear industry which is going to make us uh, provide us with an efficient source of energy where we're going to be less reliant on imports of uh, of oil. It's going to be ultimately better for the environment and it's not going to compromise our standard of
0: living if we get it right. And we do the same thing in terms of teaching, of improving the skill level we have in, in photovoltaic technology and uh, and uh, and wind and tide, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're going to be forced into these decisions in the next 20 or 30 years and in a fairly drastic way. And the trouble is we we have not prepared ourselves at all Uh, for those demands that society, that, that situation is going to put on us. Right. Final question then. And I
1: sort of asked it before. Are we, you, you talked about how, you know, the, our energy consumption is increasing all the time. But are we going to reach a point of sort of peak energy where it's, it's not that there's no energy available because we can always find energy. As you say, it's just a question of whether it can be done efficiently or not. And presumably we'll ultimately, you know, get better and better at that. But are we going to reach a point where we become so efficient at actually using that energy, not producing it, but using it that we don't need any more energy? Like we, we can only watch one television set. We only need to, we probably don't need to go to work as much. Um, you know, I can see that our energy consumption individually is going to it, possibly decline over the next decade.
0: Not decline. Well, it decline only forcibly. I think it will decline forcibly over the next twenty or thirty years. But in terms of over an enormously long span, it, it's you know, it, at some point, and this is why I'm so glad I've got Elon Musk to point to because I don't have to come across as being a space cadet myself. <laughs> We're going to need to be a um, need to be a um, multiplanetary species when you're talking multi-planetary, it takes energy to get there. It'll take energy to make those planets into something habitable. And so as a species, we may well find if we do survive the, the crunches we're going to go through, uh, at some point we're going to be using an enormous amount of energy. Yeah. And uh, I just recommend people to look, take a look at the concept called a Dyson Sphere. Have you ever heard of a Dyson Sphere? No. It's not a large vacuum cleaner. No, it's good. I sure was wondering. Yeah. Gonna, yeah. No. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a... Terraform, taking a, a neighbouring planet, converting it into a sphere that almost completely surrounds this, the star in which you are, your, civilized, your your species happens to have evolved, and absorbing the energy of the of the that star, and having your uh, your species existing on the inside of the sphere. And um, it's not much that, of a life, though, is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <It's not. laughs> but just back well, to... <laughs> the, t- the terrain would be a bit consistent. But that, that, ult- that, that in terms of a species, I mean, I, I, I make comments like this to my students at Kingston every now and then, and they occasionally burst out laughing at some of the stuff that I say. And I said, if I spoke about you flying from one side of the planet to the other in less than in 24 hours uh, one century ago, would you reckon you would have laughed? Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe a century ago, you would have thought because we're starting to see flight, you might have might have seen it as a natural extension. But look, just fundamental question, which is the title of this podcast: Is energy Uh. efficiency a race to the top? In other words, is the most uh, the richest country in the world in say a hundred years going to be the country that has found the best way of making use of the energy that's available?
0: I think the, I wouldn't say energy efficiency, I'd say energy return and energy invested. The country that achieves success on getting a high energy return and energy invested in a non-carbon based energy source is going to be, if there's going to be any such thing as a global winner. That'll be the global winner. Right. But, I mean, there's two.
1: I mean, that's an input, isn't it? So that's getting the the, the best, uh, most efficient input. But then, then how you use it is the other part of the equation. So are you developing uh, the machinery that can manufacture more more efficiently, for
0: example? And in, in transportation systems, are people going to be sitting in cars or are they going to be in Gas you know, vacuum yeah. tubes? Yeah. Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. That, that sort of thing, that's partly using your energy more efficiently. So that, that is one thing we can do. But it, when you look at the actual level of – like even looking at like it, if it, at light bulbs right now, for example, I use the example of that a human laborer's energy output is roughly equivalent to an old hundred watt light bulb, mm. but these days we're using wild bulbs with two and three uh, watts of power, and they give exactly exact as many photons as the 100 watts used ones used to do. So there's a 30-fold increase in efficiency that way. But once you've got to that point, when you now look at how many photons you get out of a 2- or 3-watt light bulb, can we get it to another factor of 10? The answer is no, about the best we can factor of another 2 or 3 perhaps. Uh, we're not going to see much below in terms of sufficient lighting for a room. We're not going to see much of an improvement on a 1-watt bulb taking the place of a 120-watt bulb. So we are in, 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 the, in manufacturing the capability of the machines we make we're reaching that maximum efficiency point already
1: right but the country that becomes the most efficient at, use, at, at either manufacturing but also using uh, at, at creating energy or, or, or tapping energy or the country that becomes uh, the, the most efficient at uh at using it or utilizing it i mean you'd assume that for a long time we are still going to have international trade in energy so it's sort of going to level itself out in terms of the the price that you pay we're going to want to as as a planet we are going to want to extract energy by the most efficient means surely it's going to be on a country by country basis uh who is using it more efficiently, and I'm just wondering whether that is going to overcompensate, or not overcompensate, but compensate for the fact that there are countries that have
0: got access to energy, which gives them a natural advantage. You see what I'm saying? Is it? Is that, it that's possible? But I think at the same time, because like in terms of we, we, the energy source you're going to have is solar predominantly, and mm. I'm afraid that gives a definite advantage to those closer to the equator. So we might also see some large geopolitical shifts occurring over time that the areas which you were, you know. Uh, left as as wastelands comparatively to the uh the temperate climates uh since we've done such damage to the planet they may be the ones where um we have to move over time because in terms of absorbing energy they get more of it from the sun right time to move back to australia then uh Mm. (laughs) at some point uh good stuff your suntan lotion
1: (laughs) we'll talk to you again steve thanks for your time
0: Okay,
1: mate. Bye. Well, that was fascinating as always, wasn't it? Next time, well, there's no such thing as fractional reserve banking, even though lots of economists and bankers seem to think there is. Uh, Steve Keen will explain why it's just a fantasy and the way banks really work. Uh, And is there a case for full reserve banking? That's next week on the uh, Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening.